This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the Farm Traveler podcast. Today our guest is Michelle Payne. So Michelle is an author and speaker. Her three books include Food Bullying, How to Avoid Buying B.S., Food Truths from Farm to Table, and also No More Food Fights. So her newest book, which is Food Bullying, kind of talks about a lot of misinformation out there when it comes to you buying your food, how there's something like over 200,000 plus misleading marketing messages in a grocery store, and how consumers are just faced with so much information. It's like information overload. So it's a really cool conversation we're going to have with Michelle talking about all the misinformation out there and what you, the consumer, can do to buy great produce and avoid buying BS, which is awesome. So again, this is episode 39, and this is our last episode of 2019. We will come back January 8th, 2020. Hope you and your family have a great Christmas holiday and New Year's holiday. We will see you in the new year. This is episode 39 with Michelle Payne. Hope you enjoy it, and thanks for listening to the Farm Traveler Podcast. Michelle Payne, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Trevor. So you are an author of some really, really cool books that I'm excited to talk to you about. But before we dive into that, tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of your background and kind of what you're up to now, including the books. Sure. Well, I am currently looking at gray fog nastiness in Indiana. <laughs> which is where I live. I just got back from speaking in Michigan, but I live on a small farm in Indiana and I've been in agriculture my entire life. Um, I am a very proud breeder of beautiful black and white dairy cattle. I love Holsteins um, and my daughter and I show those together, but my family and I live in West Central Indiana. I'm originally from Michigan and from a dairy farm, went to Michigan State University and uh, I bleed green, if you're not aware of that. I have a green and white barn. I truly love Spartan basketball. Um, but I'm a mom. I'm obviously um, a wife. I'm a stepmom. I um, enjoy fitness. I enjoy science. I enjoy chocolate. And I just happen to be a professional speaker and an author. So kind of a mix of different things. But my entire career has been in agriculture. And for the last 18 years, I've worked as a professional speaker trying to connect the farm and food world and then just uh, became an author in 2013 and have since written three books um, with the purpose expressly of trying to help people understand where their food comes from and help those of us on the agriculture side of the plate uh, figure out how to connect with the people who are eating our food and making some choices. Yeah, I, I kind of geeked out when I saw you on Twitter and your food bu- or your food truths and your food bullying books, and I was like, oh my gosh, we have to get her on the podcast. So your your most recent book is Food Truths from Farm to Table. Or no, I'm sorry, your most recent book is Food Bullying. You've got so many books out, which is great. And <laughs> so, great. Yeah. <laughs> well, food I was bully- told I have a trilogy, which I would never thought of, but I suppose. But There you go. That's pretty good. I mean, oh yeah, I've got a trilogy. No big deal. That's pretty good. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't mean it like that. <laughs> 
Well, when you write six, you can just say you have a saga of books out. Um, kind of no comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> so your latest book, Food Bullying, it's all about kind of providing tools for battling food bullying and the, and the 200,000 plus misleading marketing messages in the grocery store. So what it sounds super cool. I'm excited to get it and read it whenever I get it. So what kind of made you, what inspired you to write the book? And what are some key information that you're hoping consumers and farmers get from that food bullying book? Well, Food Bullying was inspired when I was finishing writing Food Truths from Farm to Table, which is my second book. And I wrote about 100,000 words for that book. Um, that They're not all in the book, to be clear. But um, when I finished that book, which covered more or less the 25 biggest issues, such as animal welfare and GMOs and chemicals and hormones and pesticides and antibiotics and all those pleasant, lovely topics that we like to talk with people about, um, you know, I, I specifically said at the end of that book, there's no way that I could cover all of the claims. And it's been my observation over the course of time um, that that it seems as though brains are being manipulated about food. So 18, 19 years ago, when I started talking about advocacy um, and I tried to help farmers understand that we had a problem, it was truly just that, helping people understand that the 98.5% of the population in the United States that's not on a farmer ranch doesn't understand where the food comes from and they don't trust the practices. So fast forward um, several years later and when I wrote Food Truths from Farmer Table, it became pretty evident to me that people's brains, um, there was something going on and I couldn't figure it out. And so I started delving into it, which is really what led me to write Food Bullying. And I'll be honest, I didn't want to write the book. Um, I'm privileged to be an author. I'm thankful for the legacy that leaves, but it is exhausting, emotionally draining, and extraordinarily expensive to produce a book. Um, So about a year ago, I finally signed the contract with my publisher and decided to forge forward with Food Bullying. And I wrote the book because I truly believe that people's um, thoughts and people's actions around eating are being manipulated in many ways they don't understand. And the research pretty clearly proves it. So as I delved into food bullying, I found neuroscience and psychology that shows, in fact, that the way our, our brains process misinformation and, and information, it's fascinating to take a look at it. My degrees are in animal science and agriculture communications. I'm not a neuroscientist, a social scientist, or a psychology. So it was pretty tough research to get through, um, but I'm really excited because I think food bullying covers some pieces of the puzzle that uh, have not been covered before in the whole farm and food discussion. Well, super cool. And you said you have an agcom degree, and I think that's really, really key because I graduated with um, at UF with the ag ed and communications degree. And I think that's very, very smart that you have that background because you know how to communicate agriculture to not only consumers but also to farmers because you know the speak that farmers are going to use and you know the speak in the terms that consumers might not be able to kind of understand before you kind of teach them about key topics in agriculture. So that's really, really cool. Um, so what are some of the what are some of the example like two hundred thousand plus marketing uh, mark, misleading marketing issues that consumers might come into contact? What are some of the what are some example of examples of those? Well, so some of the examples of the bull speak labels, the BS labels, I like to call them, which is bull speak to be clear, um, are things like farm raised. Uh, I would also put the non GMO label, the butterfly, in that camp. Uh, sustainable, uh, ethically raised. Uh, basically any label that lacks measure lacks meaning, in my opinion. Um, if you cannot measure the label claim, it's marketing. And so, for example, the USDA organic seal is measured. Its practices clearly are measured. It's monitored by the USDA marketing branch. It is a meaningful label if it's the USDA organic seal. But if somebody just is slapping an all-natural claim or a natural claim, or one of the, quote, free claims, hormone-free, antibiotic-free, all of those. To me, those are both speak labels. And I go through the, the psychology, actually, in the book that shows where some of these labels target you and target um, what your interests and needs are. And, and believe it or not, I broke it down on Maslow's hierarchy. And so Maslow's hierarchy is the one that shows that we have to have our uh, physiological and safety needs met first. And then you go up the pyramid and there's belonging, esteem, and self-actualization. And in the food world, 
if we could get back to asking the question, is this food nutritious and is this food safe, we stay away from the BS claims because the the bullying claims or the BS claims really target those esteem and belonging needs. Um, so things such as prestige and affirmation, um, activism, altruism, you know, a lot of people bully and they don't do so intentionally. They think they're doing the right thing by saying, as a parent, you know, you need to bring this brand to the classroom with this label on it. And if you don't, you shouldn't be bringing snacks for our kids. They don't do that to be a bully. They do it because they think they're doing the right thing. And I guess the purpose of the book is to help people um, up in the way they think about food. Yeah, that's such a cool idea. I mean, yeah, I remember last week I bought some tuna, and on that tuna can it said non-GMO on it. And I was just like, are you kidding me? Of course there's no GMO tuna. There's nothing in here that could be a GMO ingredient. And so, I mean, it's got to be super confusing for consumers, especially – like you said, like moms that are trying to provide food for their kids and even like how you said bringing snacks to school, you want to bring, you want to get the best food that you can for for your kids. But there's just so many, there's just so much misinformation out there and you don't want to get food bullied, even though people don't really mean it, which is a very good point. And, yeah, and it, it's interesting because the non-GMO label and listen, whether you support GMOs or not, that's totally up to you. I'm not going to judge you on that. But the non-GMO label um, actually charges a fairly substantial amount of money to get that butterfly on food labels. And the point here is, is that there's about a dozen foods and crops that are approved for genetic engineering. And so the non-GMO label is, in my opinion, fear-mongering because, you know, your tuna wasn't genetically modified. And there's no sense in having that non-GMO label. And it, it's interesting because um, when I did research for the measurable and meaningful labels for the book, uh, one of the ones that is identified in the book is the BE label, which is bioengineered. And that will be required by 2022, I believe. I've got to look it up here. Um, so the BE label will be on anything that is bioengineered. And the precision behind what happens with genetic engineering is actually fascinating. And if more people would understand it, I think we would see that we have a lot of medical advancements from that same technology. For example, insulin is from GMO-derived bacteria. And it's a great story of technology helping people. So I'm excited to see what things like the BE label does um, in place in particular, the butterfly. There you go. Yeah, I, I found it about that a few months ago, and I think that's going to be very interesting to kind of see not only the effect it has on the products that it's on, but also what consumers think about it. So that'll be really cool. Um, so in, in food bowling, you detail out six steps that uh, consumers can do to kind of over, overcome food bowling. So what were some of those six steps that consumers can do to kind of avo avoid food bowling? Sure. Well, the first thing is you need to know who's bullying you. Um, and again, bullying is not always intentional. Sometimes it comes um, from your own family. Sometimes it comes from those around you. And so really trying to take a look at who's bullying you. And secondly, to figure out what they're targeting. Um, neuroscience pretty clearly shows through fMRI, so the, the studies that show where the brain lights up, um, shows that our brain processes information in different ways, whether we're comfortable with new food technology or not. And then really the, the other steps are trying to take a, a look at why it matters to you, and that gets down to knowing your own standards. And I think it's um, a bit of a challenge for us to really know what our standards are. Uh, this is almost embarrassing to admit, but I had to write my standards down as an example for the book. And, and I suggest that people look at their own health, ethical, and environmental and social standards. And when I did that, I started to realize um, why uh, I am so strong on choice. I very much believe in choice on the food plate and that families have a right to choose the nutrition that they need. And I also believe that families have a right to choose how they farm or ranch and that one should not trump the other. And so really being able to understand those standards is important. And then taking a look at where you're being bullied and how you're being bullied. So within the book, I basically um, wrote down the 
the six elements to the story. Um, I provided an example of a millennial dietitian actually who was severely food bullied and she's now a dietitian who works with cancer patients. Um, and so it, I provided the example and then I suggest that people go through the same six steps themselves. And I think I forgot when, and when is a really important one because when we have major life changes. So for example, a student moving away to college, uh, someone being diagnosed with a, a horrible illness. Uh, another example would be um, somebody who's pregnant, a family that, you know, becomes pregnant. So taking a look at when you're most susceptible to being bullied, because I know from personal experience, you know, when I first um, was pregnant with my daughter, I knew better, and I still question some of my food because of the claims that I read in the pregnancy books. Um, so those, that's kind of a long answer for what, what you're getting at, but those were the six things that I, I really took a look at in the book. I'm curious about something right now. You're talking about how kind of your brain processes information. I've heard that uh, bright colors like red, yellow, kind of make you hungry. They kind of stimulate that part of the brain where it makes you hungry. And that's why McDonald's, are their main colors are red and yellow, and other restaurants might use red and yellow. Is that true? Did you ever find that in your research? I found a lot of interesting information. I didn't do anything specifically on colors. I'm trying to flip through the book and, and find it here. Um, so the food business is a, a $5.75 trillion business. That's with a T, just in case I'm not enunciating clearly. $5.75 trillion. And when you walk into a grocery store, a supermarket, they basically do everything they can to keep you there as long as possible. Um, the lighting is very strategic. The uh, ambiance is very strategic. The layout, we all know, is very strategic. And so it's fascinating to take a look at, at how even walking into a supermarket um, is manip manipulative to a certain standpoint. Now, if you're like me, you race through the grocery store as fast as you possibly can uh, to get out of there. But but there is a whole business behind getting you to buy more food than what you go in to buy. And, you know, I did the calculations. There's an average of 40,000 products in a, a standard grocery store. If there's five claims on each of those products, that's 200,000 plus claims. And that chaos alone creates confusion in the brain. And when the brain is confused, that basically our reaction is to draw upon emotions. And one of the really interesting things that I, I learned about the brain in writing the book is that you can basically break down our brain like a human rider and an elephant. So a six-ton elephant uh, with a standard male rider on it. So it's about a 99% uh, elephant the emotional part of the brain, 1% the writer, the rational part of the brain. And so I don't know about you, but I work with cattle. My cattle are substantially larger than me. They're not elephant size, but I know that I have to leverage my strengths and I have to leverage my intellect in order to be able to control the animals. Likewise, if the rational writer is going to control the emotional elephant in the brain, so in other words, if you want your rational brain to be making decisions instead of the emotional part of the brain, you have to know when you go to make eating choices that neuromarketing, so marketing using neuroscience is a very real thing. And when I go in the grocery store, um, because of all the research I do, I have to put on blinders and basically just barrel through or I get really upset <laughs> because of all of the BS claims that are out there. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Anytime my wife and I go, we're, I try to go down one aisle at a time or one aisle once. And so we're not going back and forth, back and forth. And anytime we see just like random claims on food packages, I'm like, all right, let's get out of here or let's get the better option. So that's very neat. Um, and yeah, that's why stores put like, for example, milk in the back or why they put snacks up front because there's going to be impulse buys or you're more likely to go to the store to buy milk. So it's very interesting to learn kind of how they lay it out, like Walmart, Publix, all these different chain stores. It's very interesting to learn. Um, all right, so your second book, Food Truths from Farm to Table, was kind of talking about some food myths out there. And what what kind of inspired you to write that book? And what was some key information that you included in it? Well, Food Truths from um, 
farm to table is basically looking at 25 surprising ways to shop and eat without guilt. It has 115 citations in it. <laughs> um, I had 55 plus contributors from across the United States and Canada, including uh, dietitians, ranchers, veterinarians, farmers, and um, consumers. And so what I try to do was break down the biggest issues and um, pun intended, make them more digestible if you will. And so I came up with a a list of 25 um, basic food truths for people to consider that that were simple um, to remember and yet extraordinarily truthful. And really my inspiration in writing Food Truths from Farm to Table is to get the truth out there about how food is raised. Studies pretty clearly show that farmers are still highly trusted and respected, but farming is not. And the difference is that one is a person, one is a human, the other is a practice. And before any of us in agriculture get too critical of that, I want you to think about if you trust things that you don't know. Do you trust practices if you don't know them? Um, most of us don't. And, and I think consequently it's important for us to understand that when we live in a society that's sev- several generations removed from the farm, and some studies show that 75% of people haven't been on a farm in the last five years, that we have a job to help them understand why we do what we do, and we have a job to bring truth to the table about how food is raised. So I wrote Food Truths from Farm to Table to try to bring truth to the food conversation and honestly simplify um, when people make their food choices to understand. So, for example, food truth number one is that hormones are in everything. The only food that you're buying that doesn't have hormones in it is salt. And a lot of folks, and I've discovered even dietitians don't necessarily understand that. So that's an example of a quick food truth to help people understand. Uh, Another one is that soil is a farm's greatest asset. Uh, Clearly, sustainability is a major issue, and there's another food truth about that one. But this one specifically, and soil, um, what I did is use several farmers' stories to talk about how they care for their soil. Um, So there's a a lot of really interesting information in it, and um, it is just a couple of years old, and I would encourage any of you that want the unbiased studies that that show, for example, that dairy is not – responsible for early development in girls. The book is chock full of all sorts of citations and issues, and there's even an index, so you can um, flip to the back of the book when you have a question and quickly find the information. Now, one thing you also covered in there was that the U.S. wastes about 40% of food. So what? Why, why do we do that? Why do we waste such a large amount of food? Is it because of spoilage or just a lot going to waste in the grocery store? Why does that happen? Well, there's no single answer to food waste. I mean, it, it starts on the farm and it continues throughout the system. But one of the the um, biggest components of it is our own refrigerator. I don't know what your refrigerator looks like, but <laughs> mine. I know I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I, unfortunately, I have um, issues with food spoilage, just like everyone else. And the the food truth that I wrote is that um, the answer to food waste is hidden in your refrigerator. And I am not blaming consumers solely for food waste, but I think when we live in a a land where obesity is our number one health epidemic, but yet we still have one in five people that are food insecure, and we have amazing technology to be able to produce food that could actually feed the world, uh, food waste has to be a part of the discussion, particularly from a sustainability standpoint, but I think also from an ethical standpoint. Um, So food waste happens at all levels of the food discussion. I like it. That's that's very true. Yeah, we always try to do a good job of not wasting food in our fridge. And I, I never knew this, but we interviewed a dairy farmer a few months ago. And if you have mold on just a little part of your cheese, you can easily cut that part off and the rest of your cheese is good. So I had no idea. And that has definitely helped to save a bunch of money with cheese in the past couple of months. So that's been really Yeah, cool. it's interesting because in food bullying, I actually covered um, expiration dates, which, by the way, are not uh, federally regulated. Oh, I did not know that. Know okay. that and it, I found a study that showed how many people throw away meat if it's anywhere close to the um, date that's on the package. And, in fact, there's much higher risk of um, food poisoning and soft cheeses which I'm guilty too. I mean, I yeah, I cut mold off the outside of my um, cheese, particularly if it's a hard cheese. 
But it's really interesting to take a step back and, and look at what really is regulated and what isn't regulated um, in, our, in our food. Um, you know, processing codes and the, the best of use by date is helping solve some of those issues, but it has been a challenge for us for sure. I bet. That's very, very interesting. All right. And so your last or your first book, No More Food Fights, kind of dilemmas with food buyers and farmers both based. You kind of touched base on that. But what let's kind of go over again. What kind of inspired you to kind of write that book? No More Food Fights is a two-sided book. There's a food side that addresses the five senses plus common sense to making uh, food choices. And then the farm side is basically the six steps and how to have a conversation with people across the food plate. And then in the middle of the book are common chapters that talk about how to meet at the center of the plate. And what inspired that book was a lot of people were asking me when I was out speaking, and I never believed anybody would want to buy a book for me, to be honest with you. Um, and when I figured out the two-sided book was when I decided to write that. And the majority of that book was actually written from my blog post. Um, so putting them together and, and understanding the format of, of how we wanted to do that. Um, the connections that I am fortunate to have across both dietitians and agriculture and now the health profession I think really helped bring a broad perspective to the discussion. And that is something that is absolutely critical, um, in my opinion, as far as being able to make sure that my own food story is, is, is as broad as possible and to help others in agriculture understand that, yes, we do have to talk to people that have different perspectives than us. Super cool. Yeah. So I am adding all three books to my Christmas, to my Christmas list and I cannot wait oh, to read thank them. You. Oh, you're welcome. I think they're super, super cool and I'm very excited to read them. So what's it like being a professional speaker? So like, what are some example events that you go to and what are some of the main topics you speak on with your audiences? Um, so being a professional speaker gives me the opportunity to work with some really cool people, and it varies from um, giving a celebrating agriculture keynote uh, like I did last month on the stage of an annual meeting for several hundred people to uh, working with both farmers and dietitians at my table talk training. And if you happen to be out in Oregon, we are planning one in January. So go to causematters.com and you can get signed up for that to working with groups like I did yesterday with Michigan Farm Bureau when a couple of counties came together and had a grant and brought me in to talk about translating farm to food. And then we had actually a social media panel uh, with a couple of other folks that have a strong social media following. So that was really cool. Um, and then one of my hopes with uh, food bullying is to be able to work with health audiences to help them understand how our brains are being manipulated, and then, of course, continue to take it to agriculture audiences, but I'll be working with them to um, kind of understand how to take food bullying by the horns, literally. So the topics vary, but the umbrella is always about building farm and food connections and about protecting choice both on the plate and on the farm. And that's something I feel very, very strongly about and am known for is, is getting in the hearts and minds of farmers in particular, but really everybody in the agriculture to understand that there's no singular right way of farming. And likewise, from the consumer side, the dietitian side, the food scientist side, there is no particular right food. And I'm using air quotes around right out there. Um, I, I very much believe in choice, and I think we need to do a better job of standing for choice um, because food has become so contentious. And at the end of the day, I believe, you know, particularly around the holidays here, I believe that food should be about celebration, not condemnation. I like that. That's all really good advice. Have you, um, have you had any like aha moments or any um, audience members have kind of come to talk to you afterwards? Like, man, I, I read your books. I learned a whole lot. You've kind of changed how I approach shopping. So have you had any really cool moments like that? I've had a few and, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate because 
Um, as an author, I never really know who's reading my books, I'll be honest. <laughs> so when people let me know what they think of it, it means the world because it takes a lot out of a brain and a heart to write a book. So hearing from people, um, one of my best aha moments was in January where I had a student come up to me, I believe from Clemson, and tell me that they had used food truths from farm to table in their class. And she told me all the different ways they used it, what they did with it, and what she learned from it. And it meant the world to me. Um, I don't write books to have my name on a cover. I write books for impact. And my hope is to change the food conversation. Um, and so you, I always enjoy hearing that. And as a speaker, of course, I've had hundreds if not thousands of aha moments where audience members come up and share their stories because there's so many stories good and bad um, about what's happening in agriculture and, and food and, and so forth um, so as an example you know yesterday we had a fairly extensive discussion about mental health and agriculture and some of the, the negative emotions that are happening with farmers as a result of the economy and the weather challenges and the constant questioning that they're under. Um, so, you know, that is a certainly a very moving experience. And then there's things, um, for example, the most recent one last night is Food Science Babe. If you don't follow her on social media, on Facebook and Instagram in particular, I suggest that you do. She shares amazing information about the science of food, but she does so in a way that is really meaningful to people. And unbeknownst to me, she had been bullied. Um, so last night she posted on, on Facebook about how food bullying is a real epidemic. Um, she suggested the book to people, but it was really interesting because I found out that she is actually the mom to a special needs child with cerebral palsy and that she'd been bullied because of what she'd chosen for her child. And that to me is really sad. Um, other aha moments, particularly uh, amongst farmers, is when somebody walks up to me and says, I never thought that I could do this, but I saw you speak five years ago, and since then, I've done this, this, and this, and these are the results. You know, that means the world, and I, I don't credit that necessarily to anything that I've done, aside from provoking thoughts. So really, my mantra as a speaker is if I can um, move hearts, then I can move minds. And I think that probably pushes over into the writing side as well. Well, there you go. That's really neat. Yeah, we, we've been trying to get Food Babe on the podcast, and hopefully she'll come on in a few months. So she's also a wealth of knowledge. I've been following her and just kind of how she combats misinformation out there. So she's also a really good guest. So you also have the Food Bullying Podcast. So what kind of got you started to do that? And what's the whole podcast process been like for you? Because I know podcasting is super fun. It's a little challenging. So what's that whole process been like for you? Well, it's been interesting. <laughs> I, I've resisted podcasting because I've been in social media since 2008, so I'm a fairly early adopter as far as technology goes. I'm, I'll be honest, I'm not a huge podcast listener myself. Um, audiobooks, if I listen to audiobooks while I drive, they put me to sleep. So I have to be a little careful with that. But having said that, I understand that podcasting is a great medium. I really appreciate you having me on here. And we started the Food Bullying Podcast because we wanted to frame what food bullying was, and I wanted to be sure that I was the one that was defining it, since clearly it's a relatively new concept. I do believe it's reached epidemic proportions, but it's a new concept. So I wanted to provide the insight and um, expertise from others to showcase what food bullying was. So my co-host, Liz Green, and she is a speaker and author in the health space and specifically in heart health and stress. Um, so she and I have produced, I don't even know how many books together. We both have been involved in, in each other's books pretty extensively. And we don't write each other's books, but we pretty much act as a sounding board. Uh, she lives in suburbia. She has no farm background whatsoever. And she was probably the classical food snob way back years ago when we first met. And so we have um, discussions, also known as arguments, <laughs> around many things. And we, and we happen to be very good friends. And we've had these arguments for years. So really the construct of the food bullying content, or excuse me, the food bullying podcast is that she and I will talk about food and try to address specific topics. And we have brought in amazing people. I don't know about you, but one of my favorite things um, as far as learning is 
is my podcast guests are amazing. And Trevor, I'm sure you've experienced that too with all the learning that you've been able to do from the people that you interview. And so Liz and I interview people and we've had a neuroscientist on a couple of times. The neuroscientist that actually did the fMRI work as far as how our brain processes information uh, differently about new technologies and food and what makes us comfortable and what doesn't. And another favorite was a anti-hunger advocate who was homeless when her son was a toddler. And she talks about how food bullying and our food choices in the grocery store uh, basically remove the opportunity for the food insecure to have food. As an example of food bullying, um, the whole egg, the, the housing for chickens that produce eggs, the hen housing, um, has increased food prices, egg prices specifically, quite substantially. A Cornell study has actually proven that. And when you step back and you think about eggs as a basic protein building block that the hungriest absolutely need, it's a really uh, sad example of how food bullying affects the food insecure. We've also had a farmer on from Germany who, uh, and I quote, her experience was a vegan quote, shitstorm, unquote, to be clear. Um, it's in the book where she experienced some pretty severe cyberbullying on her farm's page because she posted a picture of a kid drinking a glass of milk, you know, which is a horrible, horrible thing to do, of course. So we shared her experiences. Uh, we also had a um, nutritionist. He's a dietitian physical therapist, nutritionist in Australia. <laughs> and um, he actually has developed a, a quiz, if you will, around detecting BS and science around food. Um, and we've had numerous dietitians and, of course, lots of farmers. And one of the, the farmers actually highlighted how he was bullied by other farmers uh, because he farms several thousand acres has used great technology throughout the course of his farming career and recently has transitioned about half of his acres to organic. And consequently, his neighbors have called him names. He's been ostracized from things because they didn't approve of his choice to farm differently. I think that's a really sad statement about agriculture today. And to anyone who is involved in agriculture that's listening, I would just ask you, is it really right for you to judge others on their choice? Again, either on the farm or on the plate. So the Food Bullying Podcast has been fun. Um, the reach seems to be decent. And um, I'm very grateful to the guests that we've had because we've had some tremendous people for sure. That's super cool. I'm always excited to learn about more agro-related podcasts out there. So I'm, I'm glad that I found you guys. Um, and yeah, that's a very good point. The people in the ag industry are kind of guilty of food bullying too. I mean, we do it. People, consumers do it. And you brought up a good point. It's kind of focusing on just trusting the farmer that they're doing what they think is best, and that should be enough. Like, don't food bully, don't food bully them if you're in agriculture or if you're a consumer. So all very good points. Um, yeah, you've had a lot of really good guests about kind of uh, can the way you buy food reduce hunger? And I I want to listen. I haven't listened to this one yet, but how do you feed a vegan NFL player and a carnivore ballerina? That one sounds really cool, so I'm excited to listen to that one. Yeah, do, because it's actually, it's Leslie Bonsi, and she's a um, registered dietitian, nutritionist, and a sports nutritionist. She's got more acronyms behind her name than I can remember. But she feeds the Kansas City Chiefs. And um, so she talked with us about she does have vegan NFL players, and she also feeds ballerinas that eat steak. And I guess the point is, is that both are okay. And for all you beef people out there or all the meat producers, I know you're probably not going to like hearing this, but people do have a right. If they choose veganism, that's up to them. And if those decisions are made in science, that's their choice. And I think we have to support that. Um, and likewise, if people choose to eat meat, that's also their choice. And by the way, it's not ruining the environment because the studies that are coming out are BS. And if you want to really know what's ruining the environment, take a look at transportation and electrical production. Um, so, so 
it's really interesting, but Leslie did a great job and she is hysterical. When we have dietitians on the podcast, I ask, um, there, I give them different BS labels to see what they'll say about them. Oh, and she went off on a tangent. It was hysterical because she gets so mad about the, the silly labels that are out there confusing people about food. That's me. I can't imagine how hectic it is to feed the whole Kansas City uh, Chiefs football team. Well, I mean, and to be clear, she provides dietetic recommendations. So okay, they, gotcha. You know, they do snacks, and, and for each player she works with. And it's interesting because I'm the mom of a pretty competitive distance runner, and feeding that child is one of the greatest challenges that I have, particularly during cross-country season where she's racking on a lot of miles. And Leslie very clearly points that nutrition is a competitive advantage that a lot of people don't take advantage of. Um, and she has great advice for everyday people. One of the things we talked about with her um, in reducing food waste is to use the freezer more and that it's okay to buy frozen and canned fruits and vegetables because clearly facts prove that we're not getting enough produce in us and there's nothing wrong with canned or frozen foods. So, um, yeah, she, she does a good job. And she was the lead episode of season two. So we have – had season one with 10 episodes released and we just started season two and I'll give you a tip that um, my birthday is actually coming up and Liz and I did a special one for that to reduce stress because I asked for that as a birthday gift so that's going to release this week here too. <laughs> well that, that sounds like a pretty good birthday gift I like that kind of reducing stress I might have to steal that idea in a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> That's really neat. And I think that's a really cool um, uh, thought that you brought up that uh, that the meat industry is not hurting the environment. There's a YouTube channel out there called Kirkazat or something like that. It's very hard to pronounce. They have a lot of really good educational tutorials. And they were talking about um, is eating meat bad? And they were talking about they have their research is always super duper fact based and they have multiple research articles that they cite. And they were talking about how like you said, animal agriculture is not that bad towards the environment. In the U.S., I think it accounts for like 3%, but transportation is like 40 or 50%. But they had a really good point in that view or in that article, and it said, or in the video, it said that just because somebody eats meat does not mean they are morally less than somebody that doesn't eat meat. Because people that, like vegetarians or vegans, they, of course, their crops are grown. Well, with those crops, they also have pests that are killed off because they're trying to eat those produce. So... Just because somebody eats meat doesn't mean that they are not that they that vegans are going to be morally superior. So I think that's a very cool topic. Um, yeah, and it's it's a challenge I think because the misinformation that's out there is so drastic. And if you look, for example, nine um, percent of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions is from agriculture, and animal agriculture is three point nine percent of that. Electricity production in the U.S. is twenty eight percent of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, and industry is 9%. So there's also a tremendous amount of hypocrisy that happens. But I think more importantly, the misinformation that's out there. And I actually have a chapter in food bullying called Our Cow Farts Folklore. I happen to like the title a lot. And, yes, I know that methane is produced from chewing the cud as well as cow farts. But... In any case, I like the title. But one of the things I talk about there is the 2006 FAO report that kind of started all of this, the livestock's long shadow. And that report has since been corrected by the um, report's senior author. But the damage from the misinformation has already been done. And I think it's a prime example of uh, one of the things that I found in my research is that when our brains have misinformation stuck in there, um, so another one that probably will resonate both positively and negatively with people is the supposed link between autism and uh, vaccines. When that study was released, it was immediately uh, appealed by the UK, and, and the UK came out and said to people, you need to vaccinate your kids. Yet here we are with an epidemic on our hands of, of kids not being vaccinated and there's no link to autism. And we all know that that, that study's author had his medical license removed because of lack of ethics. But in any case, what both our examples of is when misinformation is in our brains, it's stuck there. And you can't just say to someone, 
methane is not ruining the environment. You have to very specifically replace the misinformation with corrected information and do so in a way that is meaningful to the person so that the brain will retain it. Because otherwise, the brain automatically reverts back to the misinformation. So it's, it's really interesting to see how we can control some of our thinking. And of course, you have to put bias in as part of that and, and so forth. But I would urge everyone who's out there, this is one of the biggest reasons to be proactive in speaking out for agriculture. Because the more misinformation that is put into people's brains, the harder we're going to have to work. So why don't we just get the right information out there in a meaningful way to people first before some of this misinformation becomes more popular? So that's a good point. Um, I think one of the most famous uh, studies against GMOs, which was totally thrown out, but it was one done by an author that had a book, or by a scientist that had a book coming out talking about why GMOs might be dangerous. And any anytime anybody talks about GMOs and how bad they are, this study always comes up. And the study that he used had showed that um, that mice that were given GMO feed had high rates of cancer. Well, he didn't show at all the um, the, the 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 test animals or the what is it in a scientific experiment where you have the the control? That's what it was. Sorry. Yes. So the control also developed cancer, but he didn't showcase that at all. And the specific mice that he used, all of them had very very high rates of cancer, but again, he didn't showcase that at all in his study. And anytime anybody talks about negative information about GMOs, they always bring up that study. And it's very interesting because, like you said, there hasn't been a lot of information to kind of take that false information's place. So that's a very, very good point that a lot of people don't really think about. You've got to replace the falsified misinformation with something very truthful that they can show that, yeah, this is truthful, this is real, this is why it all happened. So that's a very good point. And one of the things we fail in in agriculture, frankly, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I think this is really important, is we come back with people, we come back at people with science and data. And people will forget exactly what you do. They will forget what you say, but they'll never forget the way that you make them feel, right? We all know that that famous quote. And this is what I would urge everyone out there, to get people to have the correct information involves more emotions than it does data. It involves you being able to connect with people's hot buttons and showing them that farmers and ranchers do actually care, that people in agriculture do care, um, and what this misinformation is is doing out there. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I'm very guilty of that. Um, I follow this guy on Instagram. I think his name is Dr. Mike, and he was on a podcast recently, and he was kind of talking about what he does to kind of combat anti-vaxxers. And he says that you've got to kind of communicate with them on an emotional level. You've got to say, well, you're just doing this because you think it's best for your kid. They're like, yeah, absolutely. And he says, well, I'm trying to do it because I think it's best for your kid and all the other kids out there. So he he said it's very important to kind of get on an emotional level with them and then reason with them. So show them that you're kind of on the same side instead of just shouting out um, facts and figures and scientific data. So you've got to kind of level with them and relate to them on all aspects. So that's a very good point. Um, all right, so a question I like to ask everybody is what are your what are their thoughts on the farmer consumer relationship? So you've got a lot of really good books out there kind of educating farmers and consumers about kind of what they can do to buy products. So what are your thoughts right now on the farmer consumer relationship? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it kind of staying the same? What are your thoughts? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I would say we still have about seventy percent of the quote movable middle. I don't spend time worrying about the extremists on either side. They entrench the ingrained. Uh, I think we have some challenges on our hands. So clearly we've had a rough year in agriculture, and I don't need to dwell on that. We all know it. Um, but I think that has sometimes made us less tolerant. But for any consumer that's listening, I want you to think about what it's like to work seven days a week and lose money. And to worry nonstop about losing a family business that's been in your family for five generations. And to constantly answer questions about bad actors that you don't know, that people tell you um, represent you. And to lose your own identity in your farm. Because that's kind of where a lot of farmers are at right now um, as far as the, the consumer relationship. 
And I'm not saying that's the right perspective, but I think it's really challenging right now because there are some mental health concerns in agriculture. And I think that we need to make sure that consumers are providing encouraging words for people that are producing their food. Likewise, anybody who is out there that's involved in agriculture, please find someone who is completely different from you, who does not know where their food comes from, and take the opportunity to ask them a few questions, and then listen. Listen to what their concerns are and ask them why. Don't condemn them, don't judge them, don't bully them. Ask them why they have those concerns. Because having this conversation is so critically important uh, to our future because, quite frankly, we are losing our right to farm as we see fit. And I don't think that's okay. Um, at the end of the day, that was one of my big motivators for food bullying is I, I see choices being removed. And I know when I care for my animals that I'm the person who knows them best. I have decades of experience of working with them. I have a degree and working with them, and I don't need an animal rights activist group telling me how to best care for those. So I I think there's just a lot of opportunity for conversation and learning, Um, and I think we better get to it because that movable middle is shrinking, unfortunately. All really good points. I like that. Um, And a very good term that we don't hear enough, that movable middle, the people that need to have that the correct information, they can have their opinions kind of backed up and decide where they're going to go. So really good point. Um, well, Michelle, this has been really cool. Kind of talk about your books and everything, your your books, your podcasts. So if people want to buy the books, if they want to learn more about you, where can they go? Sure. Well, my website is causematters.com. If you can't remember that and you want to look at the Food Bullying book, just go to foodbullying.com and that will take you there. The Food Bullying podcast is at foodbullyingpodcast.com. They're all at Cause Matters. Um, the books are also available across Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, uh, Walmart, Target. You get the idea. Chapters and ago, if you're up in Canada, I've been told that, uh, Food Bowling actually releases on November 21st in Europe. Um, so you should be able to find it. And I always love to connect with people on social media and hear from you. My handle across all the channels is at M Payne Speaker, so it's M P A Y N S P E A K E R. Um, and seriously, I, I love. If you hate the book, I'd like to hear it. If you love the book, I like to hear specifically what helped you. Um, so always glad to connect with you, and I, I sure appreciate you having me on today. Um, and hopefully, it provided you some good insight, Trevor. Oh, absolutely, it did. I, I, you had a lot of really cool information. I cannot wait to read your books. I geeked out when I saw them. Um, I hope that my stocking, if my wife is listening, is going to be filled with these books. So we'll see. Well, tell your wife to contact me, and I'll give her a special package on all three, and I'll sign them all for you. So. Oh, my goodness. Deal. Deal. Real deal. <laughs> we do author sign. You know, I have to tell you, I never thought anyone would ever want a book signed by me. And then with my first book, it was so sweet because I had a guy contact me, and he wanted his wedding gift to his wife to be my book signed and so of course I did so in a special way but I was kind of like you really should give her something else too <laughs> oh my gosh yeah that, that's good advice it's like oh this is a great gift idea but also buy something else too that's funny cool well Michelle thanks so much for being on we'll be listening to your podcast and reading your books we wish you the best of luck well thank you mm-hmm.